Father, you speak to us in a variety of ways. You are ever present with us by your spirit. And you speak to us through your word, through the counsel of those we know in the faith, through prayer, through circumstances. We can see you everywhere we look. If only our hearts are inclined to seek you. And likewise, this morning, Father, we can open the word. We can read the words on the page. But only if our hearts are open to hearing you will it speak to our hearts. Let that be our state of mind and state of heart this morning, Father. Let us see the words in the the story in Scripture this morning as something more than merely entertainment, a topic of interest, but rather something personal and directed toward our hearts, something that you have prepared for just this time. And let yourself... Be the one who speaks, Father, and not me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 21 of Genesis. As I was reading through chapter 21 and studying through chapter 21, my mind came back to the story of Abraham and Sarah from the beginning, and I started to note how much we've learned. Since we were introduced to them back in chapter 12, where they were living as pagan worshipers in Ur, then God visited them there. And he interrupted their daily course of life and brought them to something new. He carried them out of that place toward the promised land, westward. They walked hundreds of miles to get there. They showed up in a country they didn't know, only to find out that the land they now see is not actually what God has prepared for them. It's temporary. It's something they're, they're going to have to just wander through in the short term. And they wait for a future inheritance in their new life after they're resurrected. Meanwhile, they move around in this land. And the time they've been there so far, they've gone to Egypt. They have fought battles with kings coming down from the north. They watched God's judgment poured out from the heavens down onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Twice, Sarah has been taken as a wife by a foreign king. They've gained a son by virtue of a concubine, but they still long for their own, naturally. And they both received these promises of God now on multiple occasions that one day yet they would have the opportunity to produce a child by their own bodies, a true son of theirs. You know, that's a pretty packed 25 years of life. Wouldn't you agree? For most of us, that might be a biography for a lifetime. For them, it's just a quarter century. It was a year ago now that they were promised this child, this child that they've been hearing about for 25 years, would finally arrive. And in that time now, Sarah has become pregnant and the time for that birth has arrived. And that's where we are now. In chapter 21, start reading with me. We'll go to chapter 21, reading verses one through seven to open up. Verse one, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
So chapter 21, I love the way it opens. I want you to take note in the passage we just read of how Moses focuses our attention squarely on the Lord and his faithfulness and his faithfulness to his word. Did you notice in verses one and two, there is a three time repetition of the Lord having spoken or the Lord said or the Lord promised always with regard to the fact that a son would come. And then in verse two, we're told she conceived and she bore that promised son. Moses starts this chapter with our focus on the Lord's faithfulness to do what he said he would do. And yet Sarah is long past childbearing. It's been a several chapters now since we were told she is past the point of menopause. Literally, she is past physical childbearing and Abraham as well, though men don't necessarily have a date or a time in which their ability to produce children has passed. Nevertheless, at 100 years old, it's not likely. At least that's the sense of Scripture. And nevertheless, here they are now with a child. Friends, this is a miracle. And not just in the everyday ordinary sense that every child is a miracle. No, this is literally a miracle. These two people, if it were up to them physically, would never have children. And yet, here we are. Isaac. The entire tone of that opening passage is one of faithfulness on the part of the Lord to do what he said he would do, despite the fact that it appeared to be impossible. He said it. He does what he says. Now, there are only two things that could have caused Sarah and Abraham to doubt God's promise to do this very thing. Those two things are, first, that there was a long period of time between when he promised and when he fulfilled. And secondly, during that time, everything they saw told them that this promise was impossible. Those two things conspired together to create doubt. And we've seen how that doubt played out in their lives, right? At one point, they chose to try to make their own child through the concubine, Hagar. But I'll tell you that it's in these circumstances where things look impossible and where time seems to be our enemy that God does his best work in us and through us. Because it's going to be a circumstance like this in which our faith is tested and ultimately built up. The first promise he gave them came 25 years ago when they were just leaving Ur, when he said he would give Abraham this seed, this inheritance. So we ask, is God slow? Did he just drag his feet a little and not get around to fulfilling this promise? And now 25 years has passed and God is a procrastinator. The scripture makes clear, and I want you to note that as well in the passage I just read. Moses makes clear at the appointed time. Isaac arrived at the appointed time. God has always planned for the birth of Isaac to take place in this moment and not a day sooner, nor a day later. Isaac arrived right on time. Have you ever heard the phrase that God often takes longer than we prefer, but his timing is always perfect? If you understand that phrase, you know it means in the waiting, we feel as though he's going too slow. But when the fulfillment arrives and we have the benefit of hindsight, we'll be able to see in that moment, no, 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 it's perfect. Had he done it sooner, it wouldn't have been as good. But we have to get there, and often is the case before we can see that. 25 years is a long time to wait. 
Let's not make light of that. I'm not suggesting that somehow 25 years is a blink in the eye. It's a long time, especially when during that time you're watching your body get older and older and older. It seems as though time is your enemy. And even the most patient person under that kind of situation is going to start to wonder and doubt and suspect that God isn't going to keep his promise. And I think that's the simple answer for why Sarah did in giving Hagar over to Abraham to produce a child. They're watching time pass and they're watching their bodies weaken. And their eyes were telling them the whole time that childbearing was not only impossible, but getting less likely as time goes on. Abraham was old, Sarah was past childbearing years. But folks, what the body cannot do in the weakness of the flesh, what the eyes cannot see, faith can accomplish. And Abraham and Sarah's faith in God's word is what brought them to this point now with a child by faith. Moses tells us here that the Lord's word was fulfilled after 25 years. What is God currently working out in our life? that may be taking years or decades to complete, that we, meanwhile, have begun to question God over. A family member who hasn't come to the Lord, a daughter or son who has run away and isn't walking faithfully in, in the faith that they may already have, financial difficulties, health issues, lifelong struggles of one kind or another. The questions arise, is God ever going to deal with this or not? Well, we can't say for certain what he will do, of course, but what we do know from Scripture is his faithfulness is not in doubt. And his timing is always perfect. He is taking his time, perhaps because our waiting is an opportunity to test our patience and our faith. And by our endurance, we will grow spiritually. I love to use analogies from parents to children when I try to understand how God deals with us. Because I think that analogy holds true very often. Then as a parent with a child who you want to grow and strengthen in their own maturity. So I ask you, is it better for the parent to give the child everything they want as soon as they want it? Or can there be value in holding back something and allowing time to pass and allowing patience to build and maturity to result? Well, the answer is obvious, right? In fact, we do the latter as parents, I hope, when we see the need to develop patience in our children. So if we know that's a good principle within our family, why should we be surprised that our Lord, who is the perfect father, won't look upon our lives at times and say, I know what you need. I know why you want it, but you need to wait. And now the question becomes in our waiting, how do we respond impatiently trying to solve the problem through some other means using our flesh to substitute for the spirit to do the work? Or as Isaiah says, be still and know that I am Lord and wait on him. Well, now Abraham and Sarah's waiting is complete. Their joy is made complete. They respond in obedience after they receive their child. They do as the Lord says. Abraham names him Isaac, which is the name God gave him. The name which we know means laughing, which was a play on Sarah's laugh when she heard that she would have a child. And then Abraham circumcises Isaac as instructed on the eighth day. It's interesting to note, Isaac is the first in all human history to be circumcised on the eighth day. Because all those who were under Abraham in the beginning, when that command was first given, they were all older at that point. There was no one who was likely to have just been born, certainly no one to Abraham. This is the first one who has been born since that commandment and therefore has received circumcision on the eighth day. That's interesting when you remember that Isaac is, in Scripture, a picture of Christ. 
the first fruits in all respects. Likewise, the first to be circumcised. Sarah, for her part, she's astonished at all that's transpiring, even though she knew this was happening. I mean, obviously, she had a baby growing in her for nine months. But nonetheless, as it's fulfilled, finally, and she has this child, she remembers the words that the Lord spoke to her when she was at that tent a year earlier, and she laughed at the promise. Now she turns that on its head and she says, the world's going to laugh with me. Not in a negative sense, but in the positive sense. Every time I get to tell this story about how my son came along, when I was so old, they're going to look at me and laugh at the prospect. And that will become a source of joy for her. She is incredulous. Can you identify with her a little bit? Isn't this how we all react when we see the Lord's grace come to fruition, especially if it's followed a period of time of waiting and doubting, having come through some difficult or trying circumstance where patience is really the, the, the thing I needed to show the most, and yet it's the thing I have the most struggle with sometimes. I want to just get it done. I'm a type A kind of guy. Let's, let's get past this waiting. Let's get on to what comes next, and I'll force a situation or seek my own solution, usually with bad results. And then God does show up. He does what he has planned to do. And I have that moment where you see the fruition of God's work, looking back on all your own circumstances, and you say to yourself, why did I ever doubt? Why did I fight? Why didn't I just sit still and wait? Look, it all worked out. If I had just not tried to fix it, it would have been even better. That's what I think she's feeling a little right now. The laughing is, I think, in part, this self-recognition, self-awareness that God was always there. He, he never stopped being faithful. I just didn't wait long enough. And now I have what I was given and what I was, what I was promised. If you've been there with me, then you can certainly sympathize with her here. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Well, this is the moment in which his sins are being visited upon him. Because now the family is in discord over the reality of a son from two different women, two sons. At this moment, Isaac is probably somewhere between ages two and four. Weaning a child was a much longer process than we typically see today. And, and in part because it was the most convenient way to keep that child healthy. And, and so it was promoted for as long as it made sense. So somewhere in that two to four range, probably closer to four than two, Isaac is ready to be weaned, to go off of milk and to be able to eat Fully just normal food. And that was a cause for celebration. It results in a feast or a party. We have a similar kind of pattern today, only we've moved it a little longer. Now it's when the child finally leaves the home. It's usually around 25 to 30. Then we have a party. Patience, patience, patience. Mine are still in their teens. I've, I've still got half their life in my house probably. Now Abraham here holds this, this party, this feast for Isaac. But there's a problem. There's a... There's this experience on weaning day that causes the family discord. Sarah finds Ishmael mocking Isaac. The word for mocking in Hebrew, it's actually a play on the word Isaac. If it were to be translated purely literally, you would say she saw Ishmael Isaacing Isaac, laughing at Isaac. But 
It's with a negative connotation in the Hebrew. The way it's actually formed, the Hebrew word here has got a negative associated with it. So it's mocking. It's a negative form of, of laughing. What's interesting, though, is Ishmael's name is not mentioned. He's referenced here only by his identity. Now, that's not just a literary choice. That's a purposeful distinction being made here, because as we move further into this chapter, the identity of these two individuals becomes the focus of the chapter. Moses is emphasizing here he is the son of an Egyptian. He is not the promised son. Remember, he's probably now in his late teens. He could be as old as 19 at this point. And here he is, a 19-year-old, virtually grown man, mocking a toddler. That tells you something about the the heart, but it also tells us much more about the spiritual dimension of these two individuals. Sarah reacts angrily here at the situation, at what she sees. And so she turns to her husband, Abraham, and she demands that he put this whole sad episode, the episode of him with Hagar producing Ishmael. Remember, she sees things differently now. She understands God was faithful to produce a child as he promised. And her efforts and Abraham's efforts were a mistake. And seeing that now as it's playing out in the relationship between these two young men, I think it all crystallized in her head. And perhaps with some natural human emotion mixed in, that jealous emotion that must have come to the foreground, she demands that Abraham expel not only Ishmael, but also the mother, Hagar, and set them out of the household. Now, the reason she gives is one of inheritance. Her basis for arguing this is that a child of a slave should not compete for the inheritance that Abraham has with the child that is born freely of Sarah in the family. Ishmael was the firstborn male. And so he could have tried to make claim as the firstborn male to the family inheritance, perhaps even competing over Isaac for that honor. And so Sarah's rationale to her husband is, you don't want this, this wouldn't be right, so you need to set him out of the home. Send them away. Some look at this and say that what she's asking for is that Abraham would be willing to divorce this woman because they are married under law and retain only Sarah as his wife. In other words, Sarah is saying you can only be parent to one son and husband to one wife. Now, we know this would have pained Abraham. It says so in the text. Isaac's his son. I mean, the whole sordid affair that brought it about, notwithstanding, Abraham has a son. Ishmael, you remember in the earlier chapter when God says you will have a son by your own flesh through Sarah. That's when Abraham said, oh, no, that Ishmael may live before you. He was proud of Ishmael. He wanted to promote this son until he found out it was not the one God chose. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love the boy. And undoubtedly, at this point, he's torn. There's a part of him that hears what Sarah says and maybe even agrees with it. But there's that other part of him that says, how can I do that to my own son? How can I set him outside the home? And it certainly doesn't seem fair to Hagar to set her out. Abraham knew Isaac was the promised son, not Ishmael. But that doesn't mean he loves Ishmael any less. And now hearing from his wife, he's in a dilemma. He doesn't know what to do. Now, you might also want to understand that because Ishmael is 19, 18, 19, setting him outside in this way is not as cruel as it might have sounded, or as you might have been taught in the past, some set up this whole story as if Ishmael's still a toddler, and that this episode is one of Abraham kicking out a poor woman and her toddler into the desert. It's not quite that bad. This is a man who can care for himself, more or less, 
and a woman who has the care of an adult son. But nonetheless, it's still a hard thing. It's still a hard thing. So what does Abraham do? What should he do? Should he divorce his wife? Should he lose his son? Well, at this point, I know what I think Abraham would have done had it been up to him. He would have looked for some way to reconcile. Some way in which the two could be fit together. He probably wants to find a way in which Isaac gets the inheritance, but yet still Ishmael grows up in his home, maybe gets some small portion. Maybe there's some way we can work around this difficulty. One child would be the one Abraham created in his flesh to the Egyptian woman. The other child would be the one God delivered by way of his promise through Sarah. But there should be some way to harmonize these two worlds, right? Why not? But God, in his response, agrees with Sarah and directs Abraham accordingly. Look what he says in verse 12. God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, Listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. And he gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So God appears to Abraham again, and this time he makes clear the separation, it's the right thing to do. He tells him, put aside your feelings, put aside those feelings of affection and your distress over having to go through this. Don't depend on your feelings. Listen to your wife. Do as she has told you. Now, I will note, this is the only time in all the Bible... When God says to a husband, do as your wife directs, but it is in the Bible. I'm sure there's more than a few wives who have put a little paper clip on this page of the scriptures and turned to him quickly. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a husband taking his wife's counsel. I, I realize this is a charged conversation and could go on for a long time. I don't need it to. You don't need it to. But let's put it in its proper perspective just so that we are clear. God gives Husbands, wives, and wives, husbands, because together the two are stronger than each is alone. And the counsel of one is a gift to the other. And a marriage that does not experience that kind of cross-spouse counsel is not a very strong marriage in my experience. Headship, as God established it in the marriage, rests with the man, but headship does not mean he gets all the wisdom. doesn't mean he has all the answers. It doesn't mean he's the only one who hears from God. It doesn't mean he's the only one who has a right to make decisions in the family. It means that when there is a disagreement, the husband will ultimately make the call. It means that when the issue is one of spiritual development and education in the family, the husband should take the lead. But those are not issues of of who should talk and who shouldn't. If you're not careful, headship becomes an excuse for lording over and for abusing relationships and silencing a partner. And that's just to the detriment of the marriage. Why is God saying Sarah had the message that Abraham should hear? Because Sarah was listening to the Lord and Abraham was listening to his heart. And I know we like to say, listen to your heart, but that's a euphemism for listen to your flesh. At least in this context. What we want to listen to is the spirit. And whether God gave this to Sarah in some specific way and it's not noted, or maybe it was women's intuition. Maybe she was just that much closer to the spirit in her own heart and she was listening a little better than Abraham. 
However it transpired, she came to the right choice while Abraham was still struggling with it in his heart. And that's why God says to him, listen to your wife. I can tell you in my own experience, my wife has heard things sooner than I have when it comes to the Lord asking us to do things. She'll tell you this. Whenever we've had to move, we did a lot of moving in the early years of our marriage because of the military and other reasons. And there's often been times when she was packing the house months before the move actually came about, before we knew we were going to move. But she had some feeling we need to be ready to move. So she's cleaning out the house and packing up. And I'm looking at her thinking, why are you doing that? In fact, I'm telling her to stop doing that because I don't want to move. And then we ended up moving. And I was grateful she started early. That is one example of how I think sometimes one side or the other in a marriage is closer to God's heart and hears a little sooner. If it's the woman, men, don't shut that down. That's God speaking to you through your spouse. Why would you want to shut that down? And sometimes it's the other way. So God tells Abraham, set your feelings aside. He gives Abraham the reason for why this separation is necessary. Isaac is to be the one through whom God's promises will be carried forward into the family line. God made a promise to Abraham, but it concerned not only himself, not only what Abraham would receive, remember, but the promise was also, I give the land to you and to your descendants. God had a plan for this promise that goes well beyond Abraham's life, and therefore, he has already selected which line of Abraham's descendants will be those to receive the promise. It is Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael has nothing to do with the promises of God. Nothing. Therefore, God does not want anyone to confuse who are Abraham's descendants according to God's promise. And if these two young men grow up in the same household, it leaves open the possibility that future generations will dispute who really are the descendants of Abraham, who really carry the promise forward. God doesn't want any confusion. He sets them apart. But this isn't just an issue of family harmony. God wants a picture here to be developed out of the lives of this family that is so utterly clear and sharp that when that picture gets applied in the New Testament, the lesson is very clear to all of us. God knew this separation would be difficult, though. He's not insensitive to Abraham's needs. So he makes accommodation for what Abraham would be feeling. He says, don't worry about your son. He is your son. He is one of your descendants, though not the one of the promise. Nonetheless, I made a promise to you that said those who come from you would be blessed. And that means Ishmael as well. So I will make him a nation. What he's saying in a sense is, don't worry, he's not going to die. He's not going to suffer. He's not being put out for the jackals. When he leaves your presence, I will still be with him, keeping my promise, because God is faithful. So even though Ishmael is not going to become part of Israel, he will nonetheless father a nation. Do you know what nation came from Ishmael? All the Arab peoples. The nations of Arabs that exist even till today trace their lineage back to Ishmael. They themselves hold that truth, hold that teaching. This is not something they would disagree with. They all trace themselves back to Abraham. This is how the Arab peoples today will make claim to be of the same father that Israel is from because they recognize that Ishmael descends from Abraham, as does Isaac. But those are similarities in flesh, for only Isaac's descendants carried God's promise. We can see, however, how God used Abraham's mistake to chastise him and his descendants, can't we? Even today, these two people groups are enemies, and they have been throughout the course of history. So Abraham sends Hagar away 
with Ishmael. Look at the manner of it, how he actually does it. He first gives them bread and water in a skin, it says. What we're talking about is a wine skin, one of these animal skins that was turned into a canteen, for lack of a better term. And it's filled with water. Water and bread. Basic rations. What he did was choose two things that created a symbolic statement. As he hands these things to them, basic rations, it signifies no inheritance. You will have nothing of mine. Then he puts them on her shoulder. You hear that mentioned very specifically in the text. That's also symbolic. It indicates she will have no future support coming from him. Another way to say it is, you will shoulder your own burdens, yours and Ishmael's burdens from now on. Don't come back to me. We see him giving her the child. That symbolizes she is now taking authority for that child. Abraham had the authority. He's placing that child now in her hands and saying, you are now the authority over this child. Now the son is gone, no longer under his authority, sent away, disowning him, and separated physically. If you add all these steps up, putting them all together, and taking into account what they meant in the culture of that day, what they symbolized, effectively what Abraham has done is say to Hagar and Ishmael, you are dead to me. This is a funeral. It's similar to the prodigal son. When the prodigal son went to the father in that story that Jesus told and said to him, I want my inheritance now. What he was saying was, I'm looking at you, father, as if you were dead. You're dead to me. And of course, when someone dies, I get the inheritance. By asking for the inheritance while you're still alive, I'm saying to you, you're as good as dead to me. I want to be separated from you and act as if you're no longer alive. That's how hard a request that prodigal son request was. How insulting it was. The same basic statement is being made here. Abraham has been told by God, treat them as dead and separate yourself from them. If we give credit to Abraham as a loving father, he's taking very bold and hard steps here. What explains that? The only answer I have is, this is a sign of just how much Abraham trusted God's promise to take care of this boy. When God says you will have a child, and 25 years later, when you're 100 years old, you do, you start to trust in him. Then when he turns around and he says, don't worry about this, lad, don't be distressed, I'm going to make him a nation, well, then you don't worry, do you? You do what God says. You hand the boy nothing, no inheritance, and you set him out. Not because you want to hurt him, but because you know God will keep his promise. He heard God say he would take care of him, and he believed it. Now, Abraham follows God's instructions here, though it pained him. So we don't blame Abraham in the sense that we understand he's just doing what God asked him to do. But we should be asking a more fundamental question. Why does God want to do this? Why has God made this the requirement? You could ask, why is God permitting or ordering a divorce if that's what he's doing? And why does Abraham's separation need to be so complete? How is this fair? Well, the answers come from Paul in the New Testament to what I alluded to a moment ago in which I said this whole life story of Ishmael and Isaac and how the separation occurs in chapter 21. This becomes an important picture of some spiritual truth that God wants us to understand. And he endeavored to use the lives of these two men and particularly this separation moment as a way of communicating this spiritual truth to us. It wasn't necessarily God's heart 
that Abraham would go and make a child for himself by Hagar rather than waiting for the promise. But since it happened, let's put it to good use. Let's create a good story out of it, one that teaches an important truth. You'll find that truth in Galatians. And for the balance of today, we'll spend in a few short verses out of Galatians chapter 4. And if you want, you can turn there with me. I'll, I'll read the verses as well. But if you'd like to see them, it's Galatians 4, beginning in chapter 4, verse 21. Let me read the first four verses and then I'll set up or explain what we're looking at here and how it relates to chapter 21 of Genesis. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says in chapter 4, verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, For these women are two covenants, one preceding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. First, let's understand what Paul is even doing here. Why is he writing this letter? I don't have time, obviously, to give you the full background on the letter to the Galatian church. It's not necessary. But we need to understand what he's addressing here. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia is probably the most powerful letter in all the New Testament. For placing the law of Moses or we might say the Old Covenant, in its proper perspective related to the grace of the New Covenant, what we have in Christ now, the New Testament covenant of Christ. Because, unfortunately, in the time he wrote this letter, the church in Galatia had been taught by Judaizers. These are false teachers who come in teaching that you have to be Jewish in order to be saved by Christ, the Jewish Messiah. They had been taught by these false teachers And as a result, there were members of the Galatian church beginning to live under the Mosaic law, going back now to performing all the requirements of the law that had been given to Israel through Moses, even though they had already accepted Christ and been saved by their faith in his work, that though they had come to faith, the law was God's expectation for Christians. And that's a clear and present danger to the gospel. So Paul says nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, in Hebrews 7, 19, it says the law has made nothing perfect. The law cannot do it. So Paul writes this letter to correct this wrong teaching. Because he realized that if this teaching got a hold, it would do damage to the gospel. Folks, let me tell you, even the best intentioned Christian can fall into the trap of that self-satisfaction that comes from trying to pursue some rigorous law that makes us feel good, like we're doing something, like we're achieving something in righteousness. That's a nature that we'll never escape. We love the thought that we had to achieve and do and work and, and make effort, and then at the end of it all, look what we did. That's the nature of our flesh. That's why the world outside believes they can be saved by their good works, which Scripture says is impossible because God does not receive works done without faith. But even after faith, we start deceiving ourselves into thinking that our good works matter to God. Not in the way you think if you believe it's a matter of righteousness. Paul, for his part here, he's presenting in this letter this deliberate teaching about why it is that having come to grace in the new covenant, we do not obey the law of the old covenant any longer. So now, here we are in chapter 4. And Paul begins to use the example of Isaac and Ishmael to tell a story of how, in faith, 
you must put aside the old covenant and live under the new alone. So Paul opens up in this passage I read out of Galatians chapter four, and he says in verse 21, you who want to be under the law, do you not even read the law? When the Jewish people say the law, they mean the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. All of it is the law, according to the way the Jews understand their scripture. They don't just mean the parts of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that list out all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. That's just a small part of the law. What he's saying is this. Did you not even read Genesis 21? It's part of the law. You say you want to be under it. Have you not even read it? And then Paul begins to explain it. There's this story of Abraham and his two sons, one that came by virtue of a bondwoman, that is a slave woman. Remember, a concubine was just another form of, of slavery. So he has a woman, a slave, who gives him a child. And as a result, that child is considered a slave as well by law. And then he has a second son born of a free woman. That's Sarah. So that child is, by virtue of his mom being a free woman, he is also a free son. So he has two sons, a slave and a free man. Furthermore, he says, the son that was born to the slave woman came by virtue of the flesh. You understand what he means, don't you? The reason that child came into existence is because Abraham did something with his body. It was all Abraham, not God. He found a woman, decided to make her his wife by virtue of Sarah's offer. And through that union, they had a child. This is what men do in their flesh by their own efforts. That's Ishmael. Ishmael is a product of Abraham's flesh. But the woman who gave birth to Isaac, that birth did not come by the flesh. Not in the sense that it was natural. She's past menopause. Women who are past menopause don't go having babies. But she did. So where does that child find its source? God, the spirit, the work of God in her to let that child be born. Paul says, so you have two children, one that came from a slave woman by the flesh of humans, the other one who is coming out of a free woman, a birth that was made possible by God's spirit, by a promise. And then Paul gives the connection to the covenants. How are these things pictures? How are these things a symbol or an allegory, as he calls it? Well, he says the law is pictured by Hagar. The law or the old covenant, the one given at Mount Sinai when, Jew, when Israel came out of Egypt and they gathered in Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to the mountain and God gives him the law, the old covenant. This is pictured by Hagar. Those who are under that covenant, the covenant of law, are in bondage to the flesh, Paul says. They are bound by a law that exposes sinfulness and by that exposure leaves them condemned. The more you know about the law, the more you will find yourself realizing how sinful you are. The more things I tell you are required, the more things you will discover you're not doing or you are doing and shouldn't. That's the nature of law. If I walked into the Texas Capitol and found every law that Texas legislature has ever passed and laid them out here and went through them with you one by one by one by one, everyone in here would be guilty of breaking some law and you didn't even know it. That's just the odds, right? There's probably some arcane law that says you can't walk on the left side of the street with your hand in your pocket or something, right? And you didn't even know it. That's the nature of law. The nature of law is that it exposes sinfulness. Laws don't make you do the right thing. They only show you when you do the wrong thing. That's the nature of law. 
When God gave the Israelites their law, they suddenly came face to face with their sinfulness. They realized, oh my goodness, look at this, we're so sinful. When you find out you're sinful, and then you find out that the penalty for sin is death, you find yourself condemned before you even know what to do. That's the nature of law. And the law then said, because you're sinful, you need to atone. And the atoning work that the law provides for is a series of sacrifices and washings and sanctifications and return to the temple again and another washing and another sacrifice. It's like the writer of Hebrews says that the priests under the old covenant give sacrifices continuously because the law never takes away sin. It just covers it up. And then a new sin comes along and there we go again. Got to go back to the temple. It's never ending. It's bondage. It's a burden. It's condemnation after condemnation. That's what the law did. That's all it can do. And as such, it can never bring us to righteousness. That was never its intent, because it can't do that work. If laws made people righteous, the state legislature would be our heroes. All we'd ask them to do is just pass a few more laws, and that would make everybody do the right thing. doesn't work that way, does it? Romans 3.20, Paul says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. From law comes knowledge of sin, not the production of righteousness. Now, the law itself, it's holy, it's good. It tells us what is righteous, but it is powerless to turn sinful flesh into righteous life. It doesn't have that power. Instead, it produces, Paul says, a slavery and condemnation. Abraham and Hagar then picture a man working by his own flesh, trying to obtain new life because he desires it. And yet all it did was produce slavery. What a beautiful picture. What was the product of Abraham's work in the flesh with Hagar? A slave child. Slavery is the product. You you can never obtain freedom from your sin and from God's condemnation by performing works of law in the flesh. And Hagar and Abraham are such a beautiful picture of that. What's more, we're told, Hagar is an Egyptian. Oh, what a beautiful addition to the picture. Egypt is a picture of what in Scripture, generally? The sinful world. Here's a woman who embodies the sinful world. Abraham going to her with his flesh, trying to do things that God has promised he would do in his spirit only. Then in verse 25, Paul says, Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of any who has a husband. Now, what Paul is doing here is very interesting. Paul's broadening the conversation just a bit. He begins to draw a connection really to you and I today, to the church, to the world. He uses present day Jerusalem as a poster child for the world. For all people, in other words, earthly Jerusalem. They are in slavery. They are Hagar's children. How so? Well, everyone who is in the world, who is not in the new covenant by faith in Christ, they have sin. And they have no one paying for it but themselves. When they stand before Christ in the great white throne judgment that Scripture promises will come for everyone who does not believe. 
They will stand in a moment in which their deeds are read from the book of deeds, we're told. And those deeds will be compared against God's holy and just law. And they will not stand that test of judgment because they will be found with sin in comparison to what righteousness requires. And in that moment, their slavery to that law will result in their eternal death. The second death, Scripture calls it. Paul says that's the world we live in today. The world is born into that. The present day Jerusalem. He contrasts that, though, with the Jerusalem that is from above. This is a real place that exists in the heavenly realm that one day Scripture says will descend to replace the earth that we have now. That's where our final and permanent abode is in the new Jerusalem. That is a place, a real city, that also will be filled with its own citizens, but the ones who live there will be those who are set free from sin, that are not in slavery, not under bondage in law, but have been set free from all of that by faith in Christ. Why? Because He did, in His life, all the works of the law, satisfying all that it requires, living it perfectly, then dying an unjust death, paying for our sin. Now, we live in His righteousness by faith. Sarah, who had no prospect for children, became a mother, while Hagar, who had the ability to become a mother, produced only slavery. And that's why Paul says there will be many more children who live from a woman who could not bear in her own flesh than there will be those who will live spiritually from the one who could bear children. And then to end, Paul finishes with the main point of the allegory, the last verses for the day. He says in verse 28, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, and so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says, we who have believed in the gospel are like Isaac in that we are children of a promise. This is a beautiful statement. God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a child, right? But that promise also included other statements like through your seed, all nations would be blessed. When you and I came to faith in the new covenant, it was a result of the promise God gave to Abraham. We are a child of that same very same promise. We were a part of that promise when he said through your seed, many nations would be blessed. That's our part of the promise. We're that fulfillment of many nations being blessed. He says we are all resulted from that side of God's work through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And then Paul calls us to consider, then why was it that God said the slave woman and her child will not be a party or an heir to what I am doing through Isaac and the promise? Why must they be cast out? Paul says it's because, well, first, the slave child persecutes the free child. And so it will be today. The world of unbelievers will, by their very spiritual nature, persecute believers. In the same way that Ishmael was mocking a two-year-old who probably couldn't have threatened him in any way, something instinctive about him looked at that child and hated him. That's what the enemy does. That's why Jesus says, if they persecuted you, remember they persecuted me first. And God said in Scripture He would place enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed so that the two worlds will always be oil and water, unable to mix, which is grace to us. And so God commanded Abraham, cast her out. Don't let them coexist. The two have nothing in common. And Paul makes the application to us. 
Once you have come under grace of the new covenant, you must cast out the old. There's no mixing of the two. Remember, Jesus tells the parable about the wineskins, why you can't put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskins are the old covenant. The new wine is the new covenant. There's no mixing of the two. The only reason we have both is one leads us to the other. And once the new has arrived, the old is gone and put away. That's why Paul ends by saying, it was for freedom that he set us free. Stand firm in that. Don't again be subject to a yoke of slavery. Abraham is not divorcing this woman. He is declaring her dead because in God's providence, from Abraham's point of view, she is dead. And by that death, he is freed from the relationship and he moves forward only with the child of promise. He is no longer to give attention to the child of flesh. That's our lesson today. As we finish and go to prayer, remember, you have been brought into a new and better covenant by the blood of Christ. That covenant has satisfied all of God's requirements under the old. If Christ has already satisfied all the requirements of the old, why do we think we can do any better on our own? There's no purpose in going back to complete the works of the law if Christ has done it for us. We are now free to be led by the Spirit because the two do not coexist. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, sometimes the Scripture brings us a deep theological purpose and point that is hard to digest in the moment. It takes time. It takes reflection. I pray, Father, that the depth of Your Word will also yield the greatest fruit in our lives. A surface understanding may satisfy us for a moment, but it's the depth, Father, the, the mysteries of Your Word that hold us to You most closely. And I pray, Father, that the teaching I've given through this will do justice to the depth of what you have for us this morning. That we'll reflect on Isaac and Ishmael, on Abraham's relationship to Sarah and to Hagar, seeing in ourselves our tendency, Father, to do things in our flesh rather than waiting on you in the Spirit. And that you do not call for these things to coexist, but for one to yield to the other. May we understand that better today. And as we live in the grace and the freedom that comes in our faith, let that empower us, Father, to speak boldly and to go out with joy, not to be self-focused on our works of righteousness, but to be outwardly focused on reflecting what you've already done in your work by our testimony. And thank you for a small church and a loving congregation and the many blessings we have to be a part of it. And let us come back next week, as always, Father, to be in this word and to be in this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.